Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, and I'm joined today by our science correspondent, Tim Cross, and our essays and briefings editor, Oliver Morton. Today, we'll be speaking about drones run amok and scientists trying to catch a gravitational wave. Um, first up, Tim, let's start with the drones. We've got a piece this week suggesting that one million, one million drones will be sold this year. Now, that sounds like a lot if we're talking about the defense kind or the industrial kind. Luckily, we're not. Um, if we're talking about a million Predator or Reaper drones, big you know, military aircraft, robotic aircraft flying around with missiles, then that would probably be quite a worrying thing. We're talking about the goofy little sort of quadcopter type things. We're talking about everything from the little toy quadcopters to the slightly bigger, more capable quadcopters that people want to use for business and so on. So lots of companies are interested in this. We've heard about Amazon and people like that wanting to use drones to do deliveries instead of having to use vans. You can use them for aerial surveying. You can use them for photography and films, you know, lots of journalists like them. And the other thing is, you know, they're just, they're fun as toys. And the issue here is not just that there's more, but that there is a, a greater sense of danger. We've seen these these things flown into places they definitely should not be, right? Yeah, so there were some cases, been some cases recently, um, there were French nuclear power plants were being buzzed by drones last year, I think that was. Um, one ended up landing on the roof of the Elysee Palace. There have been cases in the US, I think, where um, people trying to fight wildfires when you have to use planes to drop water or chemicals on the fire. Uh, they've had to actually stop operations because so many people were flying drones up going, hey, cool, a wildfire. I bet this would make some good video. Um, and it was getting in the way of the actual people trying to fight the fire. And it does sort of change things in a way because if drones become, like I was saying, if they become a toy, something that you know, the mass of people have access to, that's quite different. It gives people access you know, to the sky in a way that they, they never had before. You know, well, only pilots. But there's also questions around, I suppose, privacy. You know, we hear also about these things using in what might be termed a sort of uh, spying capacity. Yeah. So again, you get anecdotes of people saying things like, oh, you know, my young daughter was having a pool party and then someone was flying a drone over our garden and appeared to be taking pictures, which is kind of creepy. You have cases in again in the US where people sort of object to other people flying drones over their land. They're quite noisy as well, these things. They make quite a lot of noise. And you've had a couple of cases where people head inside, grab a gun and blast away at the drone. So you know, we're still trying to figure uh, out... Tim, sorry, it's all over here. What's the legality on shooting down a drone over your own back garden? And it seems to me you don't have a completely uh, unreasonable um, expectation of privacy in your own back garden. 
I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but my guess would be it probably turns on reasonable and whether sort of going straight for the firearms in the first instance is the sort of reasonable response, I guess, mm. would be... We did start out by saying that, that drones were fun, and this is a new angle on drones being fun for people who, for instance, like to shoot guns at things. Unintentional skeet shooting. <laughs> there you go. But in any case, so people are now starting to think about how we want to regulate these things. A lot of the discussion on that has been on the assumption that we mostly need to think about regulating companies that use them. Uh, but one of the other questions that now is becoming hard to avoid is, you know, if these things are going to be popular with, with people at large, we need to think about that as well. So there's some ways to, to sort of technically limit what these things can do and where they can go, right? Yeah. So um, one idea that's been quite popular is something called geofencing. So drones have GPS chips in them, so they know where they are. And one thing you can do, and one of the big manufacturers has already started doing this, is you can program them such that if they realize they're flying near like an airport or a power station or the White House or something, they will just land themselves and refuse to take off again until you go and get them and take them away from wherever it is you were flying them. Isn't that a bit like a piece of code that just says, hack me, hack me, come on over here and hack me? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, anything you can program a computer to do, you can you can sort of unprogram it to do as well if you're if you're dedicated enough. But I guess... Well, what about putting something like a uh, like a license plate on it so you associate it with a user? I mean, one of the issues here is that you can't tell when you see one of these things over your daughter's pool party where where it's being controlled from, who, who it belongs to. Couldn't we fix that? Yeah, and that is exactly a, another idea. You either, you literally put a license plate on the drone. So, you know, when you find it in a field, you can tell who it belongs to, or you at least have a register of who owns these things. And I mean, again, you know, if, if you want to get paranoid about it, you can get around oh, that do. as well. Oh, I do. I do, Tim. <laughs> well, you know, we've all seen the James Bond films. You can make the, you know, fake license plates and so on. And if you're motivated enough to hack into your drone to change its geofencing, then maybe you're motivated enough to buy one on the black market or something um, and make it untraceable. But, you know, it, it's easy to come up with doomsday scenarios for almost anything. So, you know, we've had cars for a century now and people yes, have figured out... we've had car bombs for almost a century And we've now. had car bombs for almost a century. And so... I, I, I think it's slightly flippant to say just that you can think up doomsday scenarios about everything. Well, yes, you can. And sometimes those need to be taken seriously. And a million things that can act as very small, lightweight, not very effective cruise missiles is something that I think is not unreasonable for people to worry about. But it's hard. I think the problem is, you know, it's hard to think of a way to regulate these things that makes the doomsday scenario impossible that doesn't just amount to ban them completely. I'm not saying that people shouldn't try to do hard things. I think it's hard to actually make drones in the first place. You know, they're unbelievably brilliant pieces of technology. The fact that it's hard to regulate it doesn't seem to me to justify your saying... We don't want to even try the, that's just doomsday scenario talk. I think that you well, should take the doomsday scenario seriously. Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't regulate them. I'm saying the regulation should sort of recognize that you're never going to cover every possibility. You know, it's hard to think of a way to regulate cars that makes it impossible to use them for drive-by shootings or car bombs. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't regulate them at all, but it does mean you, know, you should think about what the regulation will and won't realistically achieve. And there are probably ways that you can make it hard for people to spy on their neighbors' pool parties or or buzz the White House for kicks. But what you probably can't do is is forestall every possible malicious use of these things. The bigger picture here, and certainly this is what the, the piece lays out, it's it's not the not getting to the bottom right now of what exactly the, the regulatory scheme ought to be, but this sort of sudden notion that, good Lord, we need a regulatory scheme. This is something that the FAA and, and, and regulators around the world probably wouldn't have anticipated coming so quickly. So no doubt something we'll be talking about a lot more. 
Thanks for that, Tim. Now, moving on to uh, to your story, Ollie. The something called Advanced LIGO is coming back online, and that stands for what again? It's the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, and it comes in two parts, each as lovely as the other. Uh, one of them in Livingston, Louisiana, and one of them in Hanford, in Washington State. And they're there to measure distortions in the shape of space and time. Um, This is what the gravitational wave part must be. That would be the gravitational wave part. Uh, We'll come to the L, I, and O later. Yeah, Einstein, almost 100 years ago, told the waiting world that gravity was a matter of the geometry of space and time, which he described mathematically. And part of his description, which is the general theory of relativity, allows you to predict that under some circumstances there will be waves in this fabric of space and time which would be perceived, and I use the word very loosely, as slight changes in the shape and distances uh, of patterns of points drawn anywhere in the universe. And what the LIGO system, and now the advanced LIGO system, is there to do is to detect these very small distortions in the shapes of things. And the things in question are right-angled sets of uh, laser beams that each LIGO observatory... Uh, We're getting into the L and the I. You got me, yeah. Each LIGO observatory is basically, as one of the original developers of the system, uh, Mike Zucker put it, uh, the biggest holes ever made in the Earth's atmosphere, put at right angles to each other, and you shine in a laser beam, split it so it goes... Down both of the um, down both of the arms of the observatory, it hits a mirror at the far end, bounces back, hits another mirror, bounces back, goes up and down a few dozen times, and then you recombine the beams, um, which, despite what Ghostbusters may have told you, is not always the worst thing to do. And you see, if they're very, very slightly out of step, and if they're very, very slightly out of step, this is because the shape of space changed in such a way that it extended or compressed one of the arms of the observatory without the other one. And just so. What we're saying, it's not that the atmosphere or anything in the Earth changed. It's literally the, the sort of substructure of the universe underneath it changed as this gravitational wave went speeding by, which that is quite is, a weird thing to think that of. That is a weird thing. It is also more or less what I was trying to say, yes. And I think it is, for the purposes of non-mathematical discourse, pretty much the case. Yeah, that's what seems to be happening. Space and time, but here we're really looking at space, are very slightly shuddering as a result of extremely violent occurrences at extreme distances. So one of the things that these guys are looking for is the sort of gravitational wave given off when black holes or neutron stars collide with each other. And even though these are immense distances, the sensitivity of these devices is quite remarkable because you're looking for a change in length of the arms of something on the order of 10 to the minus 18 meters. So that's a thousandth of a millionth of a billionth of a meter. That's pretty small by the standards of subatomic particles. Predicted by general relativity was good enough to get Hulson Taylor their Nobel Prize in 93 or whenever it was. But actually seeing the wave rather than the production of the waves, that would be a first. And that's what the advanced LIGO system now believes, unlike the original unadvanced LIGO system, I guess we were just not sufficiently the advanced. primitive LIGO. Um, <laughs> the advanced the LIGO system LIGO. is... Really an awful lot better. I mean, I think that they're claiming that it can do in a day or so what the old system could do in a year. It's, it's an incredible piece of kit. And they hope that they'll go fairly quickly, as I understand it, from detecting um, such waves to actually doing astronomy with them, being able to say things about distant things in the universe that you can't say by other means. 
So now that we're in the advanced LIGO era, and, and it's this finally, after all of these years, we're in, in, in an era where we think it's a matter of you know, when rather than if in terms of detections, you say we're going to move on possibly to a, a new kind of astronomy and so on. There's, this is not the only device that can do this, right? As a, as a single, single detector, it wouldn't do a whole lot for astronomy. Well, the, the reason why LIGO, advanced LIGO, is in two different places is so that you can filter out noise that's just due to one particular place, like someone cutting down a tree in Washington state is unlikely to have a direct effect on what's going on in Louisiana. There are plans to put one in space, aren't there? Yes, they are um, fairly long-term plans, but there is certainly, and this is what you always have to remember with these big physics things, there is a community of scientists whose continued work depends on the idea that we are working towards putting one in space. I think the plans for putting... So in space, what you'll be able to do would be look at really long wavelength things. So instead of bouncing one laser beam up back and forth um, down a four-kilometer mirror mirror chamber, you'd sort of like have laser beams going for millions of kilometers between different spacecraft. Now, that's quite a hard challenge. Um, I believe the European... And easier to do in space? Exactly. I believe the European Space Agency is currently saying that it's uh, it's laser interferometer space mission, which would be three satellites in independent orbits shining lasers at each other, is I think due for launch in something like 2034, um, I mean, these guys have fairly serious planning horizons. No, but, uh, but saying they, that, there is a, there's a sort of a, a test version. There is going indeed. Up and- you, you anticipate. Um, there is a test version, LISA Pathfinder, which is just going to try and make rather nicely, just as we've got the biggest vacuums in the world down in LIGO, we're going to have the quietest place in the solar system. So even LISA Pathfinder, which can do nothing by way of gravitational uh, wave detection, is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do, and it's been in the planning stages for ages. But yes, I believe it is actually due to jump up into orbit sometime in the in the next couple of months. The quietest place in the solar system. That is a very serene notion to finish on, Ollie. Let's imagine for a moment, in fact, what that sounds like. Ah, but that's all we have time for. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.